Hello, all, and welcome to the Fantasy and Sci-Fi Fanatics Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kubal. Today, I have me a very special guest, Tatiana Obi. Tatiana, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, like I said before we got recording, I was really excited when I saw your, you know, cover for your duology. I was like, that's my type of fantasy. I got to get that <laughs> off on. So I was not, sh- it wasn't earth shattering when I had somebody bail out. And I was like, well, I'll just try and get a hold of Tatiana, you know, try and get her come on you know, a few months earlier. So I'm so, so happy that, you know, we could do that and uh, and get you on today, particularly after I checked out your website in more detail and uh-huh. checked out your world a little bit more and the reviews. So really, really excited to get my Amazon Kindle card <laughs> like I normally do for Christmas because uh, you're very high on my list. So thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm ha- happy to be here. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll get started right now uh, for that first question, which is always a fan favorite, one of my favorites. What has your writing journey been like up until this point? Okay. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> I, well, I am one of those one, you know, one of those authors like many who started writing when I was very little. Um, so I would go in elementary school, like having my friends help me write the stories and it's like, oh, what should my characters do here? What should our characters do here? Like based on Pokemon and Dragon Quest and stuff. <laughs> so I was at it when I was little. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But I really wrote my first full length um, book in high school. Um, oh. I even did my senior thesis about traditional publishing and how to apply to traditional publishing. Um, I got my first query rejection as a part of that process. So that was oh, a awesome. lot of fun to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, but I was kind of wrote this book all through high school. And when I hit college, I was tired. So I started writing fan fiction in college because I still, I, I'm just that type of person that needs to write, right? Um, and I do recommend fan fiction to a lot of like up and coming, you know, up and coming writers. It did help me a lot with our, with my craft because it is different when you finally show people your work. <laughs> So I think I exponentially improved at that time. So for example, it like showed me what I was strong at. I knew I was strong at world building. I knew I was strong at characters. It showed me what I was weak at, pacing, (laughs) my (laughs) common word, problems that always get messed up, and also how to anticipate readers' expectations. Um, So there's there's a lot of things you can learn in regards to craft with fan fiction. but after college, I tried brushing off that old story from high school, but I found that I had kind of outgrown the story. And sometimes mm. you outgrow stories. Um, yeah. The plots and twists that kind of had excited me before had just seemed more juvenile and uninteresting. So I decided to shelve that book. Um, after that, I started a new story with the specific intention of trying to pursue traditional publishing. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, I was unsuccessful at querying it. Um, and I think I, I, cause I, at that point I knew I was a good writer, um, from fan fiction, fan fiction from hearing, you know, like other people said saying, so I was trying to figure out why isn't this connecting? Like, why is it not connecting with the industry? Um, and I kind of decided that no matter how many concessions I made or how many, how much I sacrificed to fit into those boxes that the stories I enjoy telling didn't really fit with traditional publishing, mm-hmm. um, and so once I had that realization, I realized that if I was ever going to succeed being an author, I would have to cultivate my own audience. Um, and that's when I decided that I was going to self-publish. And at this time in my life, I had worked in marketing, um, you know, indie publishing was a lot more viable. So I felt like I had the skills to do this on my own. 
Um, so it's like, okay, I think, I think I got this. I think I can do that. And that's how I decided to self-publish. Um, so once I decided what I was going to do, I kind of considered what type of story I should write to introduce myself to the genre. Um, it is kind of important you know, to decide on your debut novels. Like this is this is what I stand for. This is what you're going to expect from me going forward, right? Um, kind of sets the tone of you know your career. So my decision was to go back to that story I wrote in high school. Um, because even though I had outgrown the story, the characters had stayed with me um, throughout the years. Um, so I really wanted to finally write a character, write a story that did those characters justice. Um, so I crafted a better plot around the characters. I strengthened the themes that my teenage self kind of struggled to convey. <laughs> <laughs> and it really kind of became a story that metaphorically reflected my coming of age experiences as a Black woman in America. Um, also, in addition, because I am a contrarian, I decided just to go all out and write a story that traditional publishing wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, like, there's this is a book that traditional publishing we wouldn't see it in traditional publishing um if um also so it's like i'm sorry that's okay <laughs> so, so finally after you know years later after i had conceived these characters i i felt like i finally had the craft and the skill to tell this story and you know sometimes you're not ready and sometimes you are um, but even then, insecurities and doubts kind of had me putzing over the manuscript for a few years. And it really <laughs> wasn't until the pandemic where you kind of like hitting your face like, oh, no, what if something happens? What if I never get to tell my stories? Mm. And I finally kind of had to let that perfectionism go. <laughs> so I buckled down. I self-published and I self-published my first book, Bones to the Wind, my debut novel in March of this year. So that has been my writing journey so far. So here is my first novel, Bones to the Wind. And the second one came out in November 1st. So the duology is complete. <laughs> I love those covers. I just, I can't get, I can't get over them. Like they're very like my kind of, like they're my kind of fantasy. Like from yeah. cover, yeah, like, when I was reading, you know, your blurbs, I was just like, yep, yep, yep. Like, check, 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 check. check. So, yeah, that's, yeah, they both look fabulous. I I was very intrigued by both characters. Um, yeah, in different ways, but I was just like, oh, those are really cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you said a lot of really cool things there. One thing I love that you said was anticipating readers' expectations. So I definitely wrote that one down for myself later. I'm going to have to think yeah. on that one. I think that's a good one to point out to people that, you know, maybe we don't think about that enough, you know? Yeah. Because there's there's one thing that, um, you know, you, you do get with fan fiction and you're publishing a chapter by chapter and you're hearing people's responses, right? Um, unlike a novel where you're writing the whole story and then you, and then you, and then you put it out. So it did begin to train me to have an ear of, I know what these readers are expecting. I know where this is going and I know how to pull the rug under your feet. <laughs> <laughs> you write that down. I keep forgetting. I feel like I used to write fan fiction like back in the day. And that's really where like a lot of my fantasy world came from. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like I said before we got recorded, I really loved like Robert E. Howard's like concepts. I loved using history but just making it, I love sword and sorcery. I think growing up on, you know, just so many cool, you know, movies and TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's kind of like the era for it but like forgotten realms was one dragon lance was another one and i just was like i used to do stories in those worlds and back in the day people used to um or um back when they were wizards of the coast like the mm -hmm. way back um or tsr or whatever like that you you could actually uh write a story in their world and then if they liked it they'd give you a publishing contract oh, yes i remember yes <laughs> yeah. i like had so many i was 14 i first discovered them so that's i was like i was writing 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 so i think that's really the only fan fiction i've done but you're like one of i think 20 authors that have told me that you know that was really helpful and i'm like there's so many things that i love i'm like i think that's gonna i've been thinking about doing that this summer as my writing exercise each day it's like picking something that i'm currently on whether or not it's like I really love like Morrowind and like Oblivion. I think, mm -hmm. that be, you know, like a really fun fan fiction, you know, to write. Yes. But I feel like left out because I don't think I really did. like Star Wars. I think would be a good one, you know, like you got to take all that knowledge, right? And put it somewhere. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I like how you said that. I didn't, I didn't consider that, you know, in terms of getting that feedback right away and yeah, following those reader expectations. I think that that is, that's a really good point that I had not thought of before when it came to fan fiction. So yeah, that's good. We'll think about that later on <laughs> i always love talking to writers and authors before and artists and things before love interviewing people before my writing session starts because it always it's kind of like a warm-up in itself you know because your brain always gets going and i always get something great out of some of our you know any of our guests you know so it's, it's awesome yeah. uh so i'm really really curious now that we've mm -hmm. talked a little bit before we start recording and now um for that second question, what exactly drew you to this current genre and what keeps you here? Um, so I currently write secondary world fantasy, so it will always be a different world. <laughs> um, I, I don't really write contemporary fantasy or urban fantasy. It's, it's always something different. Um, and I grew up with fantasy, like whether watching Dragon Ball Z with my dad or, you know, picking up my first fantasy novel, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. You know, oh I my just... God, I love that book. Uh, me too. Oh, I've read them all. <laughs> just a masterpiece. Like the second one was great too, third, but like that first one was just like the cover, the, yeah, just like how yes, they got the adventure. Yeah, I still remember that moment in like, middle school and the book fair and seeing that book I'm like that one that one <laughs> god such a great book <laughs> oh I wish I had seen that at a book fair I remember being at the first time being at um oh now they're closed you know like the offshoot of borders where they were Walden's books and mm -hmm. I remember like first walking into Walden's books and um, I think it was like in like seventh or eighth grade when I picked that up. I was like, oh, this looks really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. I don't yeah, blame so you there. Second world fantasy. I mean, my friend and I, we talk about it all the time. Like I do love urban fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, I've been getting more into reading that the last several years and, and writing that as well. I wish I could write sci-fi. I just, it's hard for me. But second world fantasy seems to be my thing. I think it's just, I'm a teacher. So I feel like, you know, like you it's hard sometimes to write about the real world because there, you know, there's great things, but there's not great things. And I think I just have to deal with that so much. I feel like second world fantasy is just, it's so much fun, right? Cause you can literally just take anything and create anything. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. And then when people think it's cool, you're just like, I did it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I love the imagination. So yeah, just I think that's, that's uh, creating. Yeah. 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 Cultures and peoples. And like I have a gaming group, so they've been playing in my world, my fantasy world. And, you're like, oh, this is so cool. And I'm so like, fun. 
Yeah, I'm like, I've been, because I wanted to do my own game for a while and like graphic novel and stuff for years. And um, that's like one of the things that I was thinking about doing. And it's nice, right? Because you get to, speaking of like fan fiction, you know, like I can propose something and they can tell me instantly if they liked it or not, you know? And yeah, um, it, and it's I, a very I, clever way to like figure out like what the rule, the broken rules are. Yep. No, seriously. <laughs> well, you yeah, need to fix no, things. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I highly recommend it for anybody. It is really, really fun. And it's my first time like being the dungeon master and stuff. And I I don't think I'm like the best DM because I kind of skip some of the things. I'm just like, whatever. I like help my players out a lot. I'm more <laughs> concerned about the story. And we do like yeah. my friend gave me the idea we do story points. So let's say like you have you did something really cool this session. So next time I'll give you a story point. Well, if your guys' back is to the wall or something like that, and you're down to like one health or hit point or whatever and then you come up with a really good story about how you got out of the situation or whatever i'll let you use your story point and it's like a get out of jail free card oh that's so fun <laughs> oh i'm so glad my friend suggested it it has been the greatest writing tool so then, you know once i get done with the session then i come home and then i like start writing about it and it's been like really really super helpful you know kind of makes it come to life and it's cool to see your characters you know that you create in different races and things and cultures and you know, to see your players go with that and then add to that. It's been, it's been really fun. I, I highly recommend it. It's been one of the great, greatest writing exercises I've ever done. So yeah, but I think yeah. it's, it's second world fantasy. It just makes a lot more fun. So yeah. 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 So like, I, like, I really like grew up with just a lot of fantasy around me and I, I just absolutely love exploring different worlds. Oh, um, yeah. So that's the same experience I try to emulate in my books. Right. Um, I also tend to lean more towards sword and sorcery, grimdark side of things rather than epic fantasy side of things. <laughs> <laughs> I remember having like a significant light bulb moment when I first picked up The Black Company by Glenn Cook, right? Have you read that book? Oh, I I, I busted through the first, like, I think that was like, I reread because I, I was too early, I think, in my reading journey of fantasy. I tried when I was like, I think like 14, I got it from the library. And I just, mm -hmm. I wasn't ready for Glenn Cook's style. But <laughs> like two years ago, oh my gosh, I went and I said to my buddy, I was like, how did I not just blow through this series, you know, back then? But I think I had to be, you know, more in a yeah. ready state. But God, was that... Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like yeah, it's so good. And for yeah. and for the for the audience, um, um, the black company is basically about the everyday struggles of a mercenary group, a mercenary company. Um, and I feel like finally here was the type of stories that I wanted to tell, mm. which is you know I don't write black and white conflicts. I don't write like the big epic good guys save the world type of books. I'm more interested in telling the smaller everyday stories, right, with characters who aren't perfect, who make mistakes, and who are, you know, morally gray. Mm. Um, so, for example, in my duology, it's about a bunch of kids undergoing a dangerous rite of passage to become adults. So it's the world at stake now. <laughs> but, it, the, but the world as these kids know it is at stake, then absolutely. Mm. So I really do enjoy writing those smaller everyday type of stories where the stakes are more meaningful and personal. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I feel like sword and sorcery is so good for that, you know, yeah. and um, not, that the, you know, not that I don't like epic fantasy, but I, I do agree with you. Like, like Glenn Cook, I just, I loved his, like his books. Um, That's the only thing I think that's getting me through Malazan, Book of the Fallen, or like the everyday soldier stories and, mm -hmm. you know, just the everyday people. Um, You know, you have all these other conflicts and things going on, but it's crazy. My friends and I are like 1200 pages, you know, and you, 
you know, you do have gods and different things going on, but really most of the book is, you know, 99.9% of the book is just how these people survive this harsh world and their trauma and what they do to survive it. And it's like, it's, and you know, and you just see their, their choices, they make good or bad. So yeah, I think it definitely makes a more interesting story in the long run when you do it that way. But I think your, your reader can connect more with that, right? Like, might be hard to be like oh i have all the power of a god and how would i do this versus you know like somebody just your i think that's where people really connect with harry dresden you know is yeah he's all powerful at the same time though he's not like a god you know he's like yeah he makes a lot of silly mistakes at times but i think jim butcher runs a fine line with him where he's you know has a lot of potential but also is more of an everyday man you know he's not like a especially compared to the people that he fights. He's not a juggernaut, you know, and so he usually barely wins, you know, and I like Patricia Briggs too with uh, Mercy Thompson. I feel like she's like that. And, you know, she, they, she, she gets like legs broken in one of the books and then barely survives like, you know, and you know, she's, there's all sorts of things, but yeah, I think that like everyday hero, I think a lot yeah. of people relate to that. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I didn't consider that before I have to write that down. I didn't even realize I, I did that actually. That's what I do. So I'm glad you said that. Cause I, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I just read, <laughs> what was the book I just read? Uh, uh, Kings of the wild. That one was great. And like, despite all the monsters and stuff, it's just about a dad saving his daughter. And I'm just like, yeah. this is, this is great. <laughs> oh, that's on my list for, that's like my first one on my list. Nicholas Ames, right. First one on yes. my list. Uh, he's one of my first traditional published one, um, for 2023. That's on my list. I have, a couple I'm trying to do like three indie and then one traditional um, same I go back and forth between indie and, and traditional because yeah. I like to know what's going on in both markets I think that's the best way to put it yeah like it's really nice to know speak again reader expectation you know and I think with marketing right if you don't know what the expectations are for the readers you know in each market but like you said right. you know like your story you know you know didn't fit traditionally well there's so many I've read recently I just loved where you know, they're like, yeah, I didn't fit in that traditional. But I was like, well, that's probably why I've read a lot more indie the last, you know, several years in particular, you know, because I want something different. You know, I don't yeah. want that traditional, you know, and I think that, you know, not that, not that, you know, I've had traditional authors on, you know, not that they're not doing fun and exciting things. I just think there are certain stories that, you know, the market in a whole, you know, doesn't buy or, you know, want to, you know, endorse or whatever. And, you know, I think it's a shame because I think you get some just amazing ones. Clayton Snyder was one where I, I loved his river of thieves. It was like two like bigger stories that he put in one book. And it's like, yeah, nobody wanted it. And I loved it. And then he had like one cold West where I'm like, it's gotta be one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, so everybody should go buy it. That way I get a, another one from him uh, in that world. But it's just so interesting to see, you know, like how many different people, you know, like there's so many different indie authors, right. Where you could write yeah. a story and, you know, those, you get, get a huge, you know, readership, you know, and yet traditional publishing tells us that nobody wants your books. And it's like, well, that's clearly not true. So yeah, look how well Legends and Latte is doing right now. Right? Yeah. And then they <laughs> came a knocking for Travis, right? Then they came a knocking. So I always think that that's very interesting, but yeah, it's interesting to see how the trends shift, you know, from, from year to year with both markets, but yeah. Well, speaking of which, Mm -hmm. um, I just want to get a little bit more, you know, talking, um, you know, about your duology. Um, sure. I'm going to kind of go off base here. I was just kind of interested um, where you came up with uh, the name for your duology, uh, Forging of Age. Uh, I was kind of curious, did that have a particular significance within the duology? Was that just kind of how you, you know, what you thought to put the story under? I was just curious how you came up with that. 
So the um, coming of age competition that these children undergo is called the forging. And the primary theme of both books is coming of age. (laughs) So it's a play off of coming of age. So a forging of age and how these kids become adults. Uh, Yes. And that's that's one of the reasons why um, my book is extremely difficult for traditional publishing um, is because it kind of starts with the YA tone. And by the end of it, it's adult. (laughs) These kids are making adult decisions. It's really the transition. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that's interesting. I, I, Amy Braun and I were just talking about that last night, too, where, you know, that's like, I talk about the golden compass on here a lot, because I feel like that was a similar one, too, you know, where the golden compass is a young adult, but then by the mm-hmm. time you get to the exactly. third one, you're like, whoa, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's interesting to go there. But how did you come up with this idea, like, you know, of like the forging? Uh, I'm just curious how, you know, that idea manifests itself for you. Did you kind of pull from, you know, your own experiences and then just put in a fantasy world or? Um, well, I guess it kind of it kind of goes back to, um, as you know, I started with the characters. I knew that I wanted to write a story about these characters and there are some characteristics that the characters had. So, for example, the main character, Raja, she's a hunter. <laughs> so I have to give her something to hunt. <laughs> And um, so I put the hunting as part of the coming of age competition because um, there, especially a lot of um, black and brown societies, right, has rite of passages. Um, And I wanted to um, kind of emphasize, emphasize that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, I I think that makes total sense. I'm sorry, I just got caught up with the name. Raj is just such a cool name. <laughs> I, I always loved, I, Aladdin's one of my favorite movies and I love that tiger. Um, that's such a cool name. Um, yeah, I think that it's just such a cool idea to, you know, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because we all feel that type of longing to want to make that transition from, you know, being a young adult into adulthood and to, mm-hmm. you know, really put that as a rite of passage and, you know, I, I, I reference a lot of times in my classes because a lot of our kids, you know, really struggle with that today. I, I teach eighth grade, um, you know, and we talk a lot about, you know, Native Americans and, you know, the type of different rituals and things like that, that they had, you know, to get you into what, uh, adulthood. And I think the thing that they always find interesting is that we don't have that, you know, like here, yeah. it's like you're, you're a kid till you're 18, and all of a sudden you're an adult. And, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, I talk to different educators and things and I'm like, you know, I, I, I coach um, kids as well. And it's like, I try to get, have a secondary curriculum for them because it's like, we don't do that, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting, you know? And I do think that if you look back at those, you know, different cultures who have done that in the past, you know, um, you know I think it kind of helps for those stepping stones where, you know, they have more direction or, you know, where they're going. I just think it's crazy that we do that here where you're like, oh yeah, you're, you're a kid, you're a kid, you're a kid. And then you graduate in May, but you're probably 18 for that whole rest of the year. And all of a sudden you're an adult and you're just like, what? <laughs> like, so I think it's interesting that yeah. you took something that everybody can relate to, but put it in a secondary fantasy setting, you know, when right. you show how, you know, your characters at those ages are going through the same thing. So I think that's really cool. And I love that name, The Forging. That's just like... <laughs> perfect right there yeah and it's very and it's very and I did want to take like a very honest and unapologetic um 
approach to it. Um, so that's kind of, if you read it, like not to exactly our modern sensibilities, right? Like this is a culture that we don't have familiarity. The reader does not have familiarity about, right? Um, so the characters are at the age that traditionally most rite of passages happen like like culturally around the world so they are about yeah. 15 and 16 but also sometimes in very adult situations right to think like red rising oh, <laughs> where yeah. the the characters are a bit younger but in adult situations yeah that makes total sense i think you get a lot more interesting stories doing it that way too you know because you know somebody who you know is 18 is a lot more mature than somebody who's you know 12 13 14 15 you know and i think the way that they i, I clearly know because i've worked with kids for you know almost <laughs> half my life i started when i was like 19 now i'm like 35 so um god that's scary to think of but um you know to see them make their you know different decisions year to year you know and right yeah so i think that that's actually yeah and i'm and i'm like the oldest of nine siblings oh, okay. so you know it is it is you know see as my you know siblings grow up and they you know go through it and things I'm like oh. <laughs> <laughs> my brother's four years younger than me and sometimes over the years I've been like god that was dumb <laughs> like I even told you that was dumb and you know it's funny you know and, and there'll be some things they'll say to me and you know vice versa but yeah it's yeah it is funny to see how different people uh, react to things you know and yeah 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 and that and, and and that idea is really is really in the book because many of these kids go into the foraging with their own goals their own agendas their own personalities and like getting along isn't easy <laughs> you know and making sure they don't die even harder yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah that's totally fair <laughs> we joke about that with one of my buddies where that's just like we're always like, yeah, we just want to survive the day kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. We tease the kids and I was like, we made it, you know, like, we're all okay. And they're unhappy. We're like, no, we made it though. Like school's over now. We cannot go home. Like, yeah, yeah I, I guess yeah. that makes total sense in a fantasy setting. You don't want to do the Bruce Willis and die hard. So. Right. And then I also, um, cause, cause like I kind of threw in like a lot of ideas into it. And another one of the ideas that I come up with is that I always wanted to write the rival trope. And you see Ooh. the rival trope in anime more than you do yeah. in narrative fantasy. So, you know, growing up with Goku versus Vegeta, Sasuke versus yeah, yeah. Naruto, Midoriya versus Bakugo, right? You don't yeah. really see female rivals. And it's like, oh, if I'm going to do a competition, I'm mm -hmm. going to write female rivals that, you know, push each other and are antagonist to each other, but aren't necessarily like the the villains, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so I so I also really wanted to like put that into the story as well. So that's a good one. I'm trying to think of a rival trope like in a book that I've read where yeah. there might be some in progression fantasy. I haven't read yeah. much of that, but I can see how that genre would lend itself to it, but yeah. I haven't really read it myself. Oh, that's interesting. Sorry, I just got to write that down for later. That's a really good point. I'm gonna have to kind of look into that because I remember like Jude Watson wrote the like young Jedi Apprentice series um, when I was growing up and I loved seeing Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon grow and they're they had yeah. a really great he had a, I forget the kid's name but he had a great rival uh, the rival trope she I mean Jude Watson did that to a T but yeah I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a female one and I, I can't think of yeah one. so I was like you know what I'm gonna write it <laughs> great idea yeah that's excellent oh, I'm gonna have to think about that now 
Somebody always blows my mind with something. I'm like literally stumped right now in all the books that I've read that I can't think. Of. I know there's got to be one, but I think you are right, though. I I think the one I'm really feeling like one of the ones that I read was in Progression Fantasy, which I think I totally agree with you, which, you know, really does fit that genre. It's like the Will White Cradle series. I love where he's got, a, you know, quite a few of those different. He I think he does rival tropes really well and kind of inserts, you know, some different ones here and there. But yeah, I can't think of a, a female one that I've read. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to world building, you talked a little bit about your approach, mm-hmm. but I was curious what your approach to world building as a whole was. Um, if you start with characters, if you start with the world and a cool concept, uh, I was just kind of curious at what your main focus was when it came to world building. Okay. So I generally take inspiration from everywhere and everything, mm-hmm. but what I absolutely love to do is to culture build. <laughs> So I love crafting an entirely different culture that Mm -hmm. often challenges the reader's way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of just the steps on how I do it is first, I typically choose a location. So in the book that I had originally wrote in high school, Raja comes from the desert. So I knew that I wanted to stick with that setting. So around the world, there are many deserts with their own characteristics. Um, So for the duology, I did choose the Sahara as my inspiration. And sometimes having a very specific setting in mind makes the details more realistic, as I often use the animals, the foliage, the food grown in that particular region. So they all have, so they're all, they feel real and connected, right? Um, So for this particular book, I was both inspired and (laughs) anti-inspired by (laughs) Egypt. (laughs) Because I think, Sometimes authors take world building elements from real world cultures without much thought or consideration for the history of that element um, or of their own world building. Right. So I like to rather I would like to reinterpret and reimagine. So as an example, um, I specifically chose not to use like hieroglyphs. I chose not to use pyramids or any other characteristics that are specific to Egypt, Egyptian culture. But at the same time, I was inspired by the Nile River and how it and how it acts, right? Because yeah. the Delta informs so much of the religion, the culture, the lifestyle of ancient Egyptians. So in that same vein, I came up with an element in my world building that can function the same way. So in a fortune of age duology, the main society lives under the bones of a massive dragon. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And this this huge dragon informs their religion, it informs their culture, and informs their lifestyle. So it's as important to this society as the Nile is to the ancient Egyptians. So I never pluck something without thought or intention or some kind of reinterpretation, because often that is how you can do a disservice to the cultures that inspire you, especially if it's not your own. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that like I, you know, my buddy and I have talked a lot about, you know, in terms of, um, you know, because if you, it's so hard to just go to Google and Mm -hmm. look something up and then put it in without knowing, you know, like, I'm trying to, the only thing I could think of is that like, I, oh, like the only thing I can really think of is like one of my friends um, in the UK like accidentally did this and was like oh yeah like he was writing a story about here in the United States he's like Indians and I'm like they're Native Americans and he's Mm -hmm. like well what's the difference and I'm like well you know and I explained and I was like it drives me nuts as a history teacher I'm like this guy Columbus all this credit and he gets lost and then misnamed you know puts the wrong honor on people and we keep it but we know better I'm like it drives me nuts you know and I told him I was like that would really throw a reader like me off you know I'm like you really gotta 
you know, think about it a little bit more. Yeah. Book, you know, and I'm like, that's, but I mean, you know, I think about that all the time when you ask me that, cause I'm like, well, you know, I do really like to use different cultures. I like, that's why I love your, you know, your setting. I love desert setting. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just like, that's my thing. You know, I've read a lot of really <laughs> cool books, you know, fantasy books in a desert setting. Paul S. Kemp has an amazing yeah. uh, series, um, Hammer and the Blade set in a desert setting. It's so much fun. Um, so Diablo 2 had a lot of things there, you know, that were really fun. It's the best, my favorite game of all time, you know, with Act 2, you're in the desert setting. So I think it's just one of those things. So I was looking up like veteran peoples and things like that. And I like have certain things that I thought were just so cool, but you know, I've been putting them together really slowly because at the same time, I'm like, well, I want to find the right sensitivity reader because mm-hmm. I don't want somebody, you know, from that region to be like, oh my God, and have it be something like, oh, Indians, you know, and I, I always worry about that because I'm like, first of all, you don't want to, I just, I've seen people just take a lot of things and craft it together without really thinking about where yeah. it's Yeah. It's just, it's sometimes it's just, it's a total mess, you know, and yeah. And, um, and, you know, and choosing, you know, which elements is important too. Yeah. So the, the, the second thing that I usually do in regards to world building is I consider what world building elements I can include that will strengthen my theme. Mm. Um, so I'll give two examples from my book. Um, so the main theme that I'm exploring the duology is coming of age. Um, so I consider like what can emphasize this more. And one of the choices I made was regarding pronouns. So this mm. society actually has two non-gendered pronouns, um, one used for children and one used for adults. (laughs) So without having to state it in the text, um, the world building really emphasized how important it is for these kids to become adults. But further, like how does these non-gendered pronouns affect the way they speak to each other? How does it affect the way they think? Um, And like one choice has further um, repercussions into the society that you're building. Uh, The second example I'm going to give is the use of the shroud. So in this society, all children must wear a full face shroud in public at all times, Hmm. and they can remove it when they become adults. (laughs) So again, I'm taking inspiration from the hijab, but using it in a completely different way. Um, So the question is, how does this choice, how did this choice where kids must wear wear their coverings in public, how does it change the architecture of the building? How does it change the way they relate to one another? So basically, how does these world building elements reinforce the themes that I'm trying to say? And then follow the natural ramifications that they have throughout society. So the first example I gave is a more subtle manifestation of the theme that kind of shows through the language. Mm-hmm. And the second is more physical and more visual manifestation of the theme. But both reinforces to the reader that this forging is the most important event in these kids' lives. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Too many sure. good things are said. <laughs> sure. And um, I think, I guess my last world building element is, um, is I also, that adds to my specific style of world building is I also really like to travel. Um, hmm. And often when you're traveling to different countries, you don't have the information on how to interact with people dumped into your lap. Right. Yeah, um, it's often a learning process, you know, slowly gain, gaining clarity and, and an understanding of different concepts and ideas and, you know, making mistakes. I'm like, oh, OK, that's how things work. So in that same manner, I like to write a more organic world building style in regards to delivering information. So I don't actually give very long info dumps. I usually take the reader slowly through the world and, um, and so they slowly understand it and completely yeah you know, understand it by the end of the book. 
Well, I think it's it's so important because I think it's like I just was listening to a podcast where they talked about this, where it's like, you know, nothing pulls me out of a book more than all of a sudden this one person being like, oh, yeah, like like I lived I've lived in several different states, you know, here in the United States. And then it's like, you know, I have friends from different countries. So, like, I know certain things, but there's so much that I don't know about those areas. I might know the place where I visited or lived in the, in Arizona or, you know, like I, the kids always ask me like, oh, you went everywhere. I'm like, I didn't go everywhere. I'm like, you know, we went to these specific cities in California. I, you know, didn't get to go to Sacramento. You know, I didn't get to go to, I went to LA, San Francisco, you know, um, San Diego. And I said, but those are big cities too. I said, there's plenty of spots there that I didn't go to, you know? And I think forgetting that sometimes and just assuming that you or I in that fantasy setting, like, Oh, what's this festival? Oh, yeah, it's this, 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 and this. And it's like, well, would the person who's coming in from a farm village for a week or, you know, whatever, a merchant would probably know that, but would a farmer coming in know right. all about that? You know, I think sometimes we info dump in ways that, you know, we forget. Like, I saw someone do this recently in a book that made total sense and it was awesome. And it was like, there was like this bardic, like traveler, like this merchant guy kind of thing where, like he's been all over and uh, the, the new Willow TV series actually on Disney plus does this really well with one of the mm-hmm. characters and he gets them out of where they're at. It makes total sense because he's been beyond the veil or whatever. Um, and it, it, it's, it's working really well, I think for them. And he knows a lot of things to do and not to do because he's been, you know, in all these different places. And I saw somebody do that recently with their book where I was like, Oh, it makes sense that this person knows, but you know, it is, not really right. info dumping, but as the conversation comes up, you know, he's like, oh, you don't want to do that because if we say that to these people, they'll kill us. You know, I had a guy <laughs> them a while back and I was like, it was very seamless, but it yeah, was a very clever, good way of doing right? it. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, but it's not your everyday citizen knows everything. Like, you know, they go up to this guy, you know, like I saw one where it was not done well and they go up to this guy and they tap him on the shoulder and the adventure is like, hey, what's this thing? And the guy basically knows every single thing about the whole city. And I was just like, Oh no, like that probably wouldn't be a real thing, you know, cause especially the guy's supposed to be poor. Right. So yeah. like, social class wise, like how does he know where they have to go to, you know, to get to these spots? He's probably never going to get in past the guards for the nicer part of the city. So yeah. how does he know what's there? You know, they don't have Facebook or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very hard thing to do because you really have yeah. to decide, okay, what does the reader know? Because the reader, yeah. they're at a certain point, the reader does certain information the reader needs to know to understand the story. Yeah. So the question is, what are those points that, what does the reader need to know? And, and at what points do they need to know it and to try yeah. to like naturally get it into the story? Yeah. Yeah. I know some people were talking about um, one of my friends allegedly has a graphic organizer for this. So I was thinking about kind of making my own too, you know, like act one, two, three, you know, and then kind of doing that as you go. And I was like, oh, I want to, I've been trying to get a hold of them. I was like, I want to see it, you know, <laughs> like that sounds like such a helpful tool to, you know, to, to do that with. I have this really great um, essential world building blueprint and workbook from Scribeforge. It's amazing and it's just nice to have the graphic organizers you know actually put down but yeah I think yeah that's a great idea I like how you said that you do it around theme because I have not considered that so I think that's a a really good note to think about because you really want to you don't want to just I've also seen random info dumps you know I'm always worried about that I'm like is this really something that you know does my character really need to know this does the mm-hmm. reader really need to know this is this world building that's relevant to the story or is it just like a throwaway thing 
that yeah. I think because I think that I think of the throwaway things some might stick but a lot probably don't so I think you know your your usage of doing it with theme and you know maybe pull them back a little bit I think you know makes more sense because it makes it more meaningful so yeah. yeah and beta readers also help too like they're they're very good at, at catching that information like oh I didn't put that in okay <laughs> oh so okay so you that's what you need to know okay <laughs> yeah uh, that's excellent that's what I've been looking for I'm trying to find a couple beta readers who either live in the Middle East or who have been overseas because I'm just mm -hmm. like I'm writing this like my, my monster hunter is an ex um, recon marine and he's going to have a lot of things that he did and did not like about the experience mm -hmm. and there's going to be a thing that happens to him that makes him uh, that really changes him and helps him deal with this trauma and I'm like well it's hard because I'm like I need sensitivity beta reader and I also need a veteran beta reader because um, I want yeah. to get a lot of things right so it's kind of hard because then I'm like my friend was also telling me that he did something like that recently and it was hard because he had two different, you know, there were a couple things that were two different opinions and he really had to figure out the best way, you know, to do that. But I think that, yeah, beta readers for me is like the one I'm really looking for lately, but I didn't think of that with world building. So I'm going to have to put that down on my list for them. It's a good one. Well, often when I have two differing, differing opinions, I still go back to that question of theme, <laughs> which oh. one strengthens the theme, which yeah. answer or what would, um, what were, you know, what works better for the story. Yeah. 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 That makes total sense. You got me thinking about a lot today there, Tatiana. So. <laughs> It'd be a good writing session for me later. I can already feel it. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I, I'm always curious, like I said, before we share recording, I'm, I'm just always so curious at how people decide whether or not they want to do a duology, a trilogy, you know, a tetralogy, a quadrilogy, whatever you want to call it, a quintet. So I'm curious as to how you decided for this particular story you're going to do a duology uh, and what steps uh, you took in order to plan this duology. Okay. Well, this answer is easy. I wrote a very long book. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe by the end of the book, of the, of the, the, book uh, the final word count was about 310,000 words. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, which believe it or not, I'd actually gone into this to write a novella, <laughs> like oh, an been... introductory chapter to these yeah. characters, and that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but I sort of kind of knew because due to my parades into fan fiction, I do know I naturally write novels at that length, <laughs> closer oh, wow. to the three hundred thousand words. Wow, wow. So I wasn't surprised when I finished. So I do actually have a natural length for novels, apparently. Um. <laughs> But as you know, as a self as a self published author, we do bear all the upfront cost for editors and proofreaders, yeah. who often charge by the word. Yeah. And I honestly did not have the money to get a novel of that length edited, so I decided to split the book into two parts, with the hope that the first book could pay for the editing of the second. <laughs> smart, yeah, that's smart. Um, uh, deciding where to split the book, uh, was was took me a while to figure out but I kind of decided to split the book at the point where the conflict that I had introduced into the blurb where that was resolved mm. um so the conflict introduced in the blurb where that's resolved in the book um I kind of had a lot of anxiety about this decision in regards to splitting the book um and how readers were going to react to it and I think you can kind of see it in the reviews a little bit 
because like a lot of the four star reviews that I have, they complain about like loose ends and, and unanswered questions that I knew was going to be resolved in the second book. But you know, as a debut author, you haven't really built up that cachet of patience and trust with your readers yet. Um, and also in addition, I do tend to play with my readers' expectations. Um, <laughs> and it's not real into the second book. You kind of understand what the duology is about because I kind of do... <laughs> <laughs> but luckily most of the reviews for the second book is like the ending is perfect so it is kind of like a delicate balance on deciding how I was going to approach the fact that I was going to split this book up yeah 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 I just always find it interesting um you know how people do it and how people do this you know how people decide so it, it is interesting. You do bring up a really good point, though. Like Brandon Sanderson talked about it in his online lectures at BYU. And he's like, he goes, clearly, because this was a couple of years ago, like right when the pandemic like was right about to start. And he he said, he goes, you guys as new reader or, you know, authors probably can't write, you know, 310,000 pages and then leave it on a cliffhanger. He goes, I can <laughs> and people will buy it. And I, you know, yeah. I built up, you know, the reader expectation, you know, their faith and things like that. And I'm like, well, clearly, because then now, you know, like how much money he's going to make on books that nobody's even seen or heard the blurb of or seen a cover or anything, which yeah. I'm like, well, that's clear that he really made that point, I think. So I think you make a great point of, you know, when people are trying to decide, you know, I, I still, I, we talked about that on here last year in particular for season one, like, you know, some people are like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do a trilogy because that's what I'm supposed to do. And then other people are like, well, I'm going to do a duology because that's what I want to write. And I think if you do indie publishing, I still think, you know, it's really important to, for me at least, to write what you want to write. I think right. you know, if you try, like, for instance, like, do you think that this would have worked if you had tried to, you know, that your story would have worked if you had tried to do a trilogy? That's what I um think. No, because... I, I'd written the story, <laughs> like the story yeah, yeah. was yeah. written and um, it made sense to split it into two point parts because I felt like it was, the books would have been too small in, yeah, the, yeah. in the trilogy. And um, I think if you get the chance to read it, the, the natural part where it ends makes sense. It, it, it does. It makes sense. Um, but yeah. <laughs> big books but that was that's also why I had to struggle with traditional publishing because to fit their word count rules I had to sacrifice a lot of the world building that I like to do mm. and it was just like oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. so I this this allowed yeah so this really allowed me to like tell the story that I wanted to tell and yeah. you know when I had the first book out like I did feel really anxious I'm like oh I feel like it's like it's half a story like you know like it's not not complete <laughs> so but it's, yeah it's nice that I had both of them basically ready to go all within the same year oh that's perfect yeah oh that's interesting Oh, well, it's, yeah, I just, I just always, you know, talk to people and they're like, I really just want to do it this way. And I'm like, well, I think you should do it the way you want to do it. Cause I think that that's the, sometimes I think that story is almost like a, you know, an organism in itself, you know, and it's probably mm -hmm. trying to tell you like, this is, this is the story, you know, I know yeah, some people yeah. that they're like, um, I know somebody that did get a publishing contract for their quintet and they had already, you know, written book three. They're like, oh, this is, this is horrible. <laughs> they're like, I yeah. had to go back to the, you know, the publisher and be like, I can write you something else after the fourth book. They're like, yeah. I just don't want to extend it out to five. And 
you know, it's just, it's going to be a mess at that point. So. But that's one of the um, criticisms of traditional publishing, right? They usually do a contract for trilogies and you get the soggy middle <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. when this, when a book really could have, could have been better and tighter and more efficient as two books. Yeah. 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 Well, that's my biggest thing on Malazan Book of the Fallen. Like, no offense to Steven Erickson, but like, I'm like, you could probably cut out two thirds mm. of the book and it would still be the best book you've ever read. But, you know, it's like, do you really need, you know, X, Y, and Z? And yeah, um, like the last book we did was Toll the Hounds. And it's like, we got to page like 758. I remember specifically because I called my best friend and I was yelling at him. I was like, I cannot believe we're on page 758 of 1300. And he just introduced 50 new characters. <laughs> And then, you know, we got a lot of resolutions for those new characters, but not characters that we've read for eight books. Like it drove me nuts as a writer. And I'm like, I told him, I was like, I hope I make it to the the ninth, whatever, tenth, ninth or tenth one, Cripple God. Cause I'm like, if we don't get some of these resolutions for these other characters that I really, you know, have a it was it was such an interesting writing experience that yeah. You know, there are yeah. Yeah, it's just, it gets interesting when you think about it. But Yeah, it's funny because I haven't read them yet. And I've been, you know, waiting to get a time to like read them all the way through. But I um, have heard specifically about that. <laughs> well, it's like, I, honestly, Dead House Gates was one of the best books I ever read. Like one of the best books, hands down. And then the third one, or the third or fourth one, one of the greatest characters from that book series dies. And I'm like, I couldn't do it. And like, I have to say, if it was not for my buddy, like if we were not partner reading, I would have stopped with book three. It was either book three or book four. Whichever one Midnight Tides is, it's the one before that. So I just, I don't know. Yeah, it was it was very hard. I recommend to everybody, read it with a partner, like at least one other person. I think doing a partner read for it to me, you know, because like it, it does feel like a slog at times, mm -hmm. but then you feel so triumphant when you get to the last like 250 pages it's got to be one of the best things I've ever read and I want to I just want to see what his note process is like and how yeah. he sets it up because I'm like I'm having trouble with four characters you know yeah He's got like 60 through you know nine books I just think an epic fantasy mind to me just you know him Robert Jordan and just so many people you know just oh, yeah just I just got through <laughs> all the little time last year so mm -hmm. it's like oh. ah <laughs> That's like our next it. book club thing. We're going to do, I think Iron Druid Chronicles in between because they're just short and sweet. And I love Kevin Hearn. He's a great guy. I met him a few years back and uh, I want to introduce my friend to it. I love the magic system. And, but yeah, like I told him, I was like, I'll wait for you. I'm on book seven for real time. I was like, I'll wait. Cause I like the first <laughs> a lot, you know, and I want yeah. to share the world building and stuff and talk to him about different things. But yeah, that's a, that's a good series right there. <laughs> All right. Well, that was an excellent answer. Um, <laughs> So for number six, I got to mm -hmm. know, who does your covers and how did you decide which characters or scenes would be represented? Okay, so both covers of the duology are illustrated by Asur Masoa. Um, and I found her through um, ArtStation. I found her through ArtStation. Um, she's an amazing artist and she's Incredible. extremely talented at like capturing light and movement. And that's kind of something that I was looking for because I knew I wanted to depict Raja on the first cover. Like I, it's just, when you read the book, you'll understand. <laughs> this is one of those characters. There's no way I could not have had her on the cover of my first <laughs> book. <laughs> so I needed someone who could like represent her and her spirit um, and I think she, the 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 artist did an amazing job. 
Yeah, I was like, let's go on this desert adventure. I was like, yes, was exactly. Like, Hold me up on that wherever you're on the sail, and let's let's go together. Like, yeah, yes. definitely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The second one too, though. I just I, I used to teach design for a bit. I used to want to be an illustrator. Uh, I want to get back into it. So eventually, maybe in twenty years from now, I can do my own covers. But um, man, <laughs> I, I I can't pick if I like your first. I can't pick which one's my favorite. Like, <laughs> I like both of them for a lot of different reasons. I think yeah, you know, the light with book one but then book two having that contrast with the light there on you know that character and then the darkness in the back I mean I think that's really hard to do and get a contrast I mean yeah but yet they both the styles really match you know I think that was like really hard to do but they look yeah. really great and because I guess um you know I do marketing I kind of came in with a, a constantly kind of just conceptual concept like I knew that I wanted the first book to represent day and I knew the other book to represent night, right? Oh, that's cool. Um, and also, you know, again, themes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to show that coming of age journey, right? The first yeah. book is all the fun and adventure. And then the second book is like, okay, it's getting real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, that's so becoming an adult. Like, you have to have fun here and now. It's darkness. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, she does an amazing job. I I love absolutely love art, and yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to check out her art station. I mean, yeah, those were just both very incredible covers. So she does a a great job. Very very jealous there. So yeah, I I like her art. Um, I love those covers. I would say you know her Felix Ortiz, um, and then yeah, oh, he's such a good. Oh, he's... Oh my god! So <laughs> yeah, recently for people I'm like, oh my gosh! I said to him, I was like, when I hit the lottery, can you like do my book covers? He's like, yeah, Dan, no problem. I'm like, he actually helped me a while back because we wanted to do a different um banner, and I wanted a particular type, and I haven't bought it yet, but I have one that we're coming together, putting together on Canva for our website, and. I was like, hey, can you do this for me? He goes, it's going to be so expensive. He goes, you might as well just find, he goes, it's this style of art. Find it on Adobe Reader or the Adobe, whatever it is, where you buy the images. He goes, just pick one of those. $10 a month, you'll get 10 images starting off. You won't even use them all. He goes, just do that. He goes, you'll save, you know, you'll save, you know, 900 bucks. And I had just randomly messaged him on Facebook and then we became like social media friends. But yeah, he's, He's an awesome guy. But yeah, I would say like her art's amazing. I love Yeah, him. yeah. Uh, Joel, I'm totally going to blank on his last name. Yeah. Yeah. And, really and one way, like I kind of, you know, like went and cut down on expenses and things, <laughs> right? Because um, I paid for the illustration and then I did the text myself um, to kind of cut down on price. Yeah. But then also I asked for the first off the hardcover spread that that is what I asked so that I myself could go and cut it down for the oh. paperback and the ebook so I wouldn't have to you know ask yeah for those things so I th just little things you can kind of do to um <laughs> to try to try and make it work <laughs> yeah yeah well I just spent like for my one of my novellas I just spent like probably 10 hours this weekend going over where um one of my friends um C.T. Phillips like sent me it's like I go to this website and I'm like, okay. So I went to, I'm like, oh, I found one for like $45. I think it worked for my novella. I'm like, I know I'm not going to sell a lot of them. I just, I'm doing like three prequel novellas for my Monster Hunter. And I was like, eventually, once my other stuff gets out there, I was like, I'll do an anthology and do a really cool cover 
Uh, but mm-hmm. I was like, 45 bucks is totally fine. I just need something to kind of, you know, with the genre to kind of sell. But yeah, I think anytime you can cut costs like that, you know, for, and then put your eggs, you know, more of your eggs in that one basket or, you know, for something like that, you know, like, you know, something like her art, I think that, you know, makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. It's always fun being an indie author, trying to figure out <laughs> all the expenses and everything. But my friend said, he goes, we're just going to go to like New York City and like hold up your books and a sign and be like, I am an indie author, please help me. And he's like, we'll just stay there for the weekend with some buddies and we'll just do that. <laughs> we'll see how many books we can sell and stuff oh, like that's that. That's so funny. But, yeah. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if we can carry that many. It's like, now nah, my friend's got a cart. We'll be fine. He's got a little, little wagon. He goes, we'll just go around New York City. He's like, we'll just dress like you normally do and hopefully people feel sorry yeah. for you. Yeah, you know? and you should film it and like put the video up for marketing purposes. That would actually be really cool. I didn't consider, I'm actually so excited because we're going to three Comic-Cons uh, for the podcast um, this summer and we will be, that's one thing we're going to send out in the newsletter uh, mm-hmm. for the podcast for authors. We're going to be like, hey, we're going to this, you know, Comic-Con and we, anybody who wants to send us three signed copies, we'll raffle them off and oh, we got idea. iPads and stuff. Yeah, that we're renting and, we will be um so when we know who the five authors are um like five or six we'll get those set up ahead of time so uh josiah um russell actually just did this recently um where he had set up a really cool giveaway so we'll set it up on the ipad so that way like if you're one of the authors you know you're we'll do like your twitter facebook whatever you know your newsletter obviously is the big one amazon profile things like that and look mm-hmm. at like five raffle tickets um, you know, for doing each of those. And then we'll probably have the podcast as one on like one of the platforms or whatever. But yeah, so it'll be cool to, you know, we're, so, we're going to film the whole thing. Uh, we got a friend who's not just going to come with his phone. He's going to come with his actual camera and we're going to interview people and stuff. So yeah, pretty, pretty excited there to edit and cut that up. So I think it'll be really cool for people. But all right. So for the seventh one there, speaking of building your brand, um, I got to say, when I saw your covers, I was like, that's how you build a brand. And then when I went to your website and then, you know, I was checking things out there, you know, and I'm looking at reviews and things like that. I'm checking out your blurbs. I felt like you've built your brand up pretty well, pretty quickly. So I was just curious when it comes to building your brand as an author, what do you find most important? Um, so especially as an indie author, there are a lot of decisions that we face (laughs) that we have to decide, right? Um, should I do KU or go wide? What should the cover look like? What should the blurb look like? How should you mark the book? What should I price the book? We have a lot of (laughs) decisions we have to make. Um, and I think that the most important question that you can kind of ask yourself that will help you answer all the other ones is who is my target audience? Mm. So, for example, um, the the kind of the common wisdom on the Internet for fantasy authors starting out is to focus on KU and then transition wide later in your career. Right. Yep, yep. Um, and this makes a lot of sense for fantasy because KU pays by the page and fantasy books tend to have a high page count. So that yeah, yeah. kind of keeps the reader reading. So it makes sense. Um, but I chose wide right out of the gate. And this is because my target audience is different than most indie fantasy authors. And my target audience are specifically BIPOC readers and readers who are intentionally reading diverse fantasy. Um, So because of my target audience, not only being accessible was important to me, but I also wanted to be available to a wider number of foreign markets. And I also wanted to have more control over how I conduct the sales and discounts as well, because I want to make sure that 
my books are also affordable when I want them to be affordable yeah. um, to my audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Second, for example, covers. <laughs> if you look in the indie space, my book tends to stand out like a yeah. sore thumb in group graphics. <laughs> yep. um, but that's because I'm not marketing towards general epic fantasy readers like most indie authors are. I'm marketing toward readers who tend to read traditional published books, who are fans of like the Blood Trials, Iron Widow, Legendborn, Raybearer, the Sunbearer Trials, Blood Sky On, right? Like, and what do all those books have in common? They all have a main character on the cover. Yep. And why is this? Because, you know, in an industry with a historic lack of seeing that diversity on your bookshelf backs. Um, so it's hilarious because I had actually underestimated initially how much it mattered. <laughs> so the general wisdom in the self-publishing community is to focus on marketing the ebook because it's cheaper to produce and you generally receive a higher royalty in return. Yeah. Um, so authors generally see more ebook sales than paperback sales. So color me surprised when I launched the book and the reverse happened. Um, I, want both. I want both. <laughs> I'll do the ebook to help you out, but I, I need them. I need them. I need them physically yeah. for my bookshelf. Like they're just too. Yeah. <laughs> my, like my target audience thought the, the cover was really cool and they were buying the paperbacks. And oh, like I had accidentally priced the paperback books so close to printing costs. I didn't make any money off of them oh. initially because I didn't, I didn't know any better, but you know, mistakes yeah. and lessons were learned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I honestly didn't think anyone other than my family would buy the paperbacks. Like, that's why I had done it for them. But here there were random internet strangers buying my books. Um, so, like, to this day, I've made the exact same royalties off of my ebooks as my paperbacks. And wow. even my second book, I have sold twice as many paperbacks as the ebooks. So, target wow. audience matters. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you really got me considering some things really differently here. Because I feel like right. you and I are very similar, like genre, you know, in terms of fantasy. So yeah, that's right. Really interesting. So second, second thing, for example, price. Right. Um, I had initially priced the ebook for Bones to Win for four ninety nine out of the gate, which again, most indie authors are like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'll start with like ninety nine cents, or you know, like start it with free at the the beginning to kind of get the ball rolling, things like that. But the majority of um, epic fantasy BIPOC readers, they're reading traditionally published books um, simply because in comparison to traditional publishing, when you're talking about BIPOC books, um, BIPOC fantasy by BIPOC authors, there's not as many in the indie space as there is yeah, in the is. traditionally published space, right? So yeah. that's kind of where they are. And at the same time, I'm not talking about romance or urban fantasy or paranormal. Those are different genres and those yeah. tend to be more indie heavy, right? Yeah. Um, I'm talking about specifically epic fantasy, sword and sorcery, like the big, um, those big genres. Um, and so, and, you know, I suspect this is the case because BIPOC fantasy books are simply more visible by the fan traditionally by traditional publishers yeah. so even if um we do have indie books they tend to not be as visible like we do have great 
any books in 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 this sphere, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you you think of like Gunmetal Gods, Lights of Octar, or Sons of Darkness by Gaurav Mahanti, or Tether Spirits by T. A. Hernandez, or the Drowned Kingdom, P.L. Stewart, Seventh Cadence, yeah. Jim uh, Wilburn, like they are there, but they still aren't as visible um, as the traditionally published books, right? Yeah. Um, and because of it, like this is an audience that tend to be used to paying for books at a higher price, yeah. right? Like traditionally published ebooks are like $10, $11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, so that's why I was more comfortable pricing my book at $4.99. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I was more intentional in seeking out early reviewers and arc readers to kind of help give the book legitimacy when it launched. I have um, never, never considered that in terms of the price for the the like traditionally published uh, e-price books. Um, I've never considered that. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. Or for example, the blurb. <laughs> I was also very intentional with the way I crafted the blurb. Mm -hmm. And I do think it also does a very good job of attracting the readers who might like the book. Um, I also intentionally put in the blurb what I like to call do not pass goats. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, you'll never find a curse word in a traditionally published blurb. Right. But I intentionally added one into the blurb of the book because one of the main characters frequently curses in the book. I'm sure you can guess. <laughs> I'm sure you can guess who it is. <laughs> Gus is like a sailor, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And so like if someone has a problem with that reading the blurb, then this book is obviously not for them. And it does a very good job of weeding out people who have problems with curses. And yeah. so I don't usually get those type of reviews. Right. Like don't don't pass go. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen like Red Bruno and them like where they had cold as hell and like the guy on the cover looks like he looks like he swears and it's all <laughs> cold as hell and they had some very um particular type of readers who are like well this was one out of five this was awful I couldn't yeah. get past the first page and he's like it's called cold as hell there's a sheriff on the front like did you think it was going to be a clean book? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. another one of my like do not pass goes is being intentional. I'm mentioning that the book contains queer representation because if people have a problem with that, then they have a problem with a lot of things in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a very liberal and progressive book. And I intentionally crafted the blurb to weed out people who this book might not be for. And that is really what a blurb should be for. Because yeah. um, I feel like a lot of people, they write blurbs and intend to reach the most widest audience possible. But my intention is to really find the reader who will like the book. And I think... Um, and I think the reviews that I've received so far has shown that I've been successful in doing that. Because a lot of the times, you know, books aren't for everyone, right? And um, just receiving different reviews just means you, it might not be landing with the right audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like in conclusion, determining your audience is important and do not be afraid to do something different than the general wisdom if it makes sense for your target audience. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's really smart. I never considered that for for a blurb yeah that's really cool hmm. check that out you guys are not writing notes down in the audience i don't know what to tell you. you're like missing gold right now i like ran out of notes on my pad i have to get another one later <laughs> that's a good sesh right there well that's awesome i i think that's really smart i have not seen somebody do that craft their blurb exactly like that um, or with that general idea. And I think that makes total sense because 
you know, like you said, you know, first of all, you know, any review is a good review, but you know, like I know some people, like I said, they get bombed right now because nobody can, you know, some of these certain people can't make it past, you know, the first couple of pages. And, you know, I think that they thought it was going to be a different type of book. So I mm -hmm. think that, I think maybe if they had done what you did, you know, a couple of different times on the blurb or whatever, I think that that would actually help them, you know, in the long run. So I think that that's really smart. Yeah. And even, you know, have like, um, and even throughout the book a little bit, like the epithet is very obvious, like, okay, this is the type of book we're getting. Um, just try to be obvious on what this book is, <laughs> like, is yeah. about. Well, that makes sense too, for like, you know, your, and I was just like thinking too, like maybe even, like maybe not even like to, I'm just thinking like the, you know, like the sample that you're giving as well, I think makes a really big difference, you know, and mm -hmm. um, if you're doing chapter one or a prologue or something like that, I know some people, you know, are really intentional with that as well. So, you know, that might even be a good way too. you know, if you're, you know, you're having trouble crafting, a, you know, a really good blurb that does that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even think about that for the first, you know, couple pages, um, you know, that sample or what you're putting in there, you know, maybe that's a, a good indication as well for somebody, you know, when they're reading that sample. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's several little like things I do. I, I kind of do with the blurb. Uh, for example, the way it's crafted is actually crafted kind of like a romance novel mm. where, as you know, um, one one the first paragraph is from like one of the characters point of view and the second paragraph is from the other character's point of view but because you know rivals trope and I couldn't find any you know where can I go to <laughs> yeah. figure out how to write a blurb for it like I use that format to write the blurb nice. to to um represent the rival trope that I was going for um and even there's a there's a third character and third main character in the book but I don't talk about him in the marketing i don't mention him in the blurb and there is a particular plot reason why hmm. that's interesting hmm. oh that's interesting i have to check that out i'm really excited to read book one <laughs> to see all these things. my friend said that the other day he goes he goes we don't read a lot of these books i said there is no way with writing as much as i write that we will read everybody's books i said i would like to eventually as it helps me with my reading list and I review all of them and I will be doing a bunch um, after I'm done with this season and we'll be putting them out this spring. I had a lot of notes and things on the books I did read, particularly for indie. But I'm like, you know, I said part of the thing, too, I said it's almost like I get a director's cut, you know, like in the process. And then I mm. go and read because I've done that a lot with my friends where I, then I've read their book and then I go back and do the second interview with them. I'm like, well, what about this? And oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it, it honestly, it helps so much because seeing where you conceptualize these ideas just helps me out more when I'm reading, you know, your book to then be like, oh, okay, that makes total sense. And I've just gotten such a better, like if I could literally set up a, you know, an interview with every author, like I have Deborah Dunbar right now, Urban Fantasy. I just love her Dead Rising book. I wish that I had talked to her ahead of time to see how she did her world building and then read it because I'm loving it right now. But I'm like, oh, that's a missed opportunity as a writer because as a reader I've noticed a lot of things and stuff but yeah it's definitely been helping me out a lot when it comes to having a better reading experience um you know I kind of feel like I have a secret you know or like I <laughs> you know got told you know the, the quid pro pro ahead of time uh, but yeah, yeah. then give me a much better reading experience and then afterwards I have a much better writing experience so it's helped me out quite a bit so I do a little bit differently than other like podcast hosts but I get so many cool books like yours, you know, on my Kindle and then I can go through and, 
you know, and, and check out a lot of different things. And as a writer, I just feel like it's, it's a much better experience. So highly recommend it to people if you're starting a podcast, but (laughs) that's awesome. Uh, for that last one, um, do you have any news updates, promos, current projects that you'd like to share with us, even if they're secret and you can't mention the names or anything or, (laughs) Okay. Um, So I, the duology is finished and I kind of really wanted to take a break from this world. Um, Mm. I do think I'm going to kind of come back to it eventually and write some standalones. Um, But I want to take a break. So I decided to work to, to do this novella. And um, because I also wanted to have something smaller and something at a smaller price point to offer people to introduce them to me as well. Um, And I'm really excited about it. Have you watched the anime Afro Samurai at all? Oh, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yep. So I'm writing a female version of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, (laughs) extremely excited. Oh, that's cool. Well, you got it. You sold the pre-order already because that sounds awesome. (laughs) Write that down. That is cool. Well, when you have that ready, you're going to have to come back on. We'll have to talk about that because that just sounds amazing. Yeah, like it's just a very, very specific genre, again, that I haven't seen very much narratively. Comic books, yes, but yeah, in yeah, narrative yeah. form, not as yeah. much. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting that you bring that up, though, because somebody else and I, we were just talking about that, and I'm totally blanking on the anime that her and I were talking about, but she said that. She's like, well, I had this idea from this anime, and then this idea, and then I decided to put it together and she's like uh, there's no she goes there's clearly a market because you know these this is a huge anime and totally blanking on what it, which one it was but um I was just like yeah that makes total sense and I'm like why didn't I think of that you know I'm like it's, you know I think that's how a lot of different genres have been opened up particularly in indie and right um, right is people like oh well, what do people like and then I'll do this like the you know um Cameron Johnson with the Maleficent Seven you know like that's mm-hmm. that's a great example you know like people love fairy tales and mythology why not you know turn it on its head you know and I think yeah a lot of people have done that then you know and I think that you know there's a lot of yeah. graphic novels I think like you know Jeffrey H. Haskell with his um oh his different superhero novels has done a really good job with that you know like that clearly was a big thing but there weren't a lot of superhero novels so he was able you know to do a lot um with both of his uh female characters and build really cool worlds so I yeah think- that's a really good idea. I think that's a yeah. great marketing <laughs> right there because you already know who your audience is. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. Find those, you know, particular algorithms on, you know, um, Amazon. I think that, that, I think that worked really well. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. And especially, um, you know, like the generation has grown, grown up and raised with anime, right? Like they are already familiar with the tropes. They're already familiar with archetypes. We just, you know, like, ah, yeah, <laughs> cross them over. Well, there's so many, so many of my female students too love anime, you know, like love anime, like, um, you know, and I, there's so many times, like draw anime. I mean, I have so many yeah. art, female artists in my classes. I'm always like, can you please do something with your art? I'm like, that you've been given a gift, you know, come on. Like, I'm like, I know this industry. I'm like, I know there's not enough of you. I'm like, just get out there, do your thing. I'm like, I know plenty of, you know, female artists that, you know, I can help, you know, contact you with them and you guys will just fly off into space and do really well but yeah I think you know you you market to you know that particular crowd I think you know you could totally sell out of your paperbacks again <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so yeah that's that's a really good idea I like how you said too about the price point like having something you know a little smaller where they you know they get a sample of you know your writing mm-hmm. 
know, your style. I think that that's what I'm doing. I think that makes total sense. I think is really smart. So yeah, that's cool. Anything else that you had to share with us? That's a really cool one right there. Ah, uh, no, that's it. That's what okay. I'm working on. I like how we end with Afro female samurai. That sounds yes. Cool. <laughs> if you guys need anything other than that, this is not the podcast for you. That's <laughs> well, Tatiana, it was a pleasure. I knew we were gonna have a great conversation. I can just feel at this point, you know, when I when I see somebody's website, you know, their book covers, um, you know, and then when I read their blurbs, I'm like, okay, I'm like, we're gonna have a really good conversation. So glad to see I was right. Um, uh, there's you know, anything else that we can do for you in the meantime, um, you know, let me know if you have you know, any sales or, you know, you just, you know, over the holidays, you're like, oh, I really want to get more of these, you know, paperbacks sold or something like that. Just okay. send me the link and, you know, I'll share it everywhere that we can and try to help you out. Um, in the description, just want to remind everybody, if you're new to this podcast, uh, we always put Tatiana's and all the other authors, uh, social links, place where you can find their books in the description. So please make sure you click there. You can go right there, buy the books right away. Uh, season two, we're really trying to emphasize, please make sure authors like Tatiana, once you have, you know, gobbled up those products, whether it's Audible, you know, e-book uh, or, you know, um, the paperbacks, hardcovers, whatever, please make sure you're reviewing those. That way Tatiana can write more and then we can get her on here and chit chat more about her writing in her <laughs> world. So, but Tatiana, again, thank you so much for coming. Like I said, oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, anytime, anytime you want to come and, you know, chit chat about Dragonlance or after <laughs> whatever, just let me know and we'll get you on. I, don't forget, I will be sending out um that email about the newsletter. Okay. We will be trying to get, you know, uh, multiple authors on at a time in the winter. Mm -hmm. We'll do like a two hour slot and we'll do two different episodes. Um, If we go along, there might be three episodes from that one little uh, seminar that we'll have and we'll send you the questions and the topic ahead of time. So you'd be ready to go. So I think you'd be a perfect fit for those. So. I'll send you one that maybe you'd be interested in. So, okay, thank you. <laughs> we have a great rest of the evening, and I will talk to you later, my friend. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.